From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Today, we talk with two federal public defenders about the evolving role of defenders in addressing the human needs of clients and reducing recidivism. Our guests, Maureen Scott Franco and Kathy Nestor, have spearheaded efforts in which defenders take a more holistic approach to working with clients at pretrial and during reentry. The purpose of holistic indigent defense is to solve underlying social and environmental problems that may have contributed to a client's involvement in crime. It does this by emphasizing interdisciplinary teamwork, partnership with other criminal justice stakeholders, and identification and mitigation of collateral consequences. Maureen Scott Franco has been a public defender in the Western District of Texas for 24 years. She became the federal defender in 2013 and has been deeply involved in developing the El Paso Division's Project Sendero Reentry Court and its newer Adelante Diversion Court. Kathy Nestor has been federal defender for the District of Utah since 2011. Before that, she was an assistant federal defender for several years in the Southern District of Mississippi. In 2013, Kathy, her Utah counterparts, and the federal district court created a collaborative, district-wide standing committee called Assisting Reentry to Our Communities, or ARC, to facilitate reentry planning and policymaking. ARC has been key to the district's successful reentry efforts. We've got a couple of disruptive defenders in the house today, people, so keep yourselves right here. You won't want to miss it. Maureen Franco, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. I'd like to start our conversation by reading you both a description of holistic indigent criminal defense and then having each of you react to it. The description comes from an article written by Robin Steinberg, who's the executive director of the Bronx Defenders, which is a public defender organization in New York City and a pioneer of this approach to practice. For folks in the audience who might be interested in reading the article, it's available on the Bronx Defenders website. According to Ms. Steinberg, what has become clear is that the traditional model of indigent defense representation has become complicit in the broken machinery that is the criminal justice system. Even when we zealously fight the government and argue passionately and persuasively for our clients, at the end of the day, we do nothing to alleviate the crushing circumstances from which they have come and to which they return. There is, I now believe, a better way. Working compassionately with indigent clients requires a first-hand understanding that the problems and challenges they face stretch farther than the confines of the criminal cases before them. Indeed, working compassionately means knowing that clients come with a host of unaddressed social problems, poverty, mental illness, alcoholism, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and family dysfunction. Quite simply, the criminal justice system is the last stop for many clients. End of quote. So, Maureen, uh, when you think about this, what's your reaction to it, and how does your work in the Western District of Texas reflect this perspective? Um, well, I hear that. I think, amen, um, because uh, you, as you mentioned, I've been doing this for a long time and um, started out as an assistant defender and had success in the courtroom, um, but then you would see clients come back and um, you know, you um, would quote-unquote win, um, but yet you really didn't solve the problem, the underlying problem, the behavior that led to the criminality in the first place. And so that was one of the aha moments I had um, when we first started the reentry court, was, um, which is Project Sendero, was, you know, how can we help? 
people reintegrate and we can't, we could change their mindset, but if we don't address what the environmental forces are behind them, then it's going to be for naught because um, it will take an extremely strong individual, um, even if they become strong mentally and they make better choices, if they're released back into an environment that's not supportive, if they're uh, released back into an alcoholic situation or in poverty or in homelessness or in, you know, a neighborhood that is um, uh, eaten up with drug addiction. And so it became very clear um, after starting this that um, a holistic approach is the only way we can solve the problem and with the hopes that it will trickle down to other members um, of um, the uh, client's family. Kathy Nestor, same question. You know, how does uh, how does your work in Utah reflect Robin Steinberg's perspective? What's your reaction uh, to the to the quote from our article? Talk a little bit about that. It it brings to mind an analogy, if you'll permit me. <laughs> um, for example, if you were a medical physician and a patient came to you, and you were an orthopedic doctor, say, and they had a broken right leg. And as you were setting their broken right leg, you noticed a terribly inflamed and infected rash on their left leg. Um, to not do holistic criminal defense is somewhat akin to the physician just not commenting on the leg and sending him off with his right leg fixed up, knowing that the left leg is going to send him right into the hospital any day. Um, and I think that kind of puts a little... Um, a little bit of perspective on how difficult it is as criminal defense lawyers to simply focus on on one uh, component of the criminal justice system without even acknowledging that there's um, serious issues that need to be addressed or this person is going to be right back um, in the same situation. I mean, we're basically setting them up to fail and wasting resources and and definitely harming our communities when people go in and out of prison like that. So um, for all the same reasons that Maureen just discussed, um, Utah as well has really taken um, a serious look at how do we approach the infected leg. <laughs> and if we're not the person that can treat it, how do we connect our patient or our client with the person that can help them, that can treat um, the underlying symptoms and causes of criminality and why this person was in our system to begin with. Um, and I just think it's very forward-thinking. I think we're all evolving. It's definitely a massive culture shift from how it's been for years and years and years, and massive culture shifts don't happen quickly. Um, but it's really powerful when it does happen. So um, we also have a program. We have several programs here in Utah. Um, we have drug court, behavioral health court for people that suffer with mental illness. We have two tribal reentry courts for our tribal communities. Um, we have a veterans court that addresses particular needs of veterans. Um, and we also have a pretrial diversion court that tries to steer people out of the criminal system before they take on all the collateral consequences of a felony. Um, so we're trying lots of different things, and um, for all the reasons that Robin mentioned in her article, um, could not agree more with what she said in the article or with what, with, with what Maureen just said. 
So, Maureen, uh, Kathy just mentioned this culture shift that's taking place. Um, and, and I want to sort of drill down on that a little bit with you and with Kathy, uh, because I, I imagine that this culture shift is really something that strikes at the heart of the traditional approach to criminal defense work, indigent criminal defense work, especially in the work of public defenders. And and I just sort of wonder, you know, what reactions you've gotten, if any, Maureen, from either assistant defenders in your own office or other defenders across the country when they hear about the work of defenders taking a more holistic approach, the work that you're doing in the Western District of Texas, and it's also taking place, obviously, in other parts of the country as well. What kinds of reactions do you get? And um, for example, do you get reactions like, that's not the that's not what public defenders are supposed to do? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I would say that, um, yes, that, that's exactly, uh, even people within my own office, not the people that are on the teams, that's why I make them voluntary, that they they have to be interested in doing it and participate in it because there is a thought out there that that's not the work of a public defender, um, that they're supposed to represent the client in court and try to secure a good um, result for them and that that's, the, that's where it ends, is right there. And so it really requires a cultural shift in our thinking as to what Kathy mentioned, you know, um, we may be able to set the leg, but if there's a, a festering wound that we have not addressed or at least talked about, that it can lead to problems in this person coming right back into the criminal justice system, which, of course, no one wants. No federal defender out there or public defender out there wants to have um, a client uh, come back into the justice system. But there's a there's a certain amount of uncomfortableness of getting to know your client that deeply. And this does require an attachment to the client to a certain degree that you um, have to be invested um, because, you know, people can smell if you're a fraud. And if you're just um, putting on a show that you really care about what's going on in their lives and what's going on at home and how they're addressing their problems, I mean, most people, especially people who've been around a little bit, are going to be able to sniff that out, the, the phoniness of it. And so you really, it does require you dropping down your guard that um, you know, in a lot of ways we've been trained to put up so that we don't get too emotionally attached to our clients. And so it's a delicate balancing act, but it certainly is worth it when you see someone um, that you helped through um, resources that you have in your office or outside your office um, trying parlaying that into their success. Um, it's definitely worth it. Um, there is great... Um, as um, the article pointed out, there is um, a tremendous amount of personal satisfaction when you see someone who is able to change their lives and the lives of their family. Um, I would say defenders in general outside of um, our office doing this, a lot of them will, you know, I wouldn't say a lot, but some will shake their heads and say, oh, I don't have time to do that. But really, it's worthy of a cause enough to make time to do it. Kathy, same question for you. What's been the reaction of, of assistant defenders in your office? What, uh, what kinds of uh, reactions have you gotten from other federal defenders who might, uh, might take umbrage uh, at, the, at the sort of broadened role uh, envisioned by holistic indigent defense? Sure. Well, like I stated, you know, the downside of a culture shift is that people <laughs> who are very steeped in the former culture <laughs> have a hard time looking at it a new way. 
Um, there, you know, you hear the infamous, I'm not a social worker comment, um, and I tend to question back <laughs> that, that response. Um, but also, you know, in, in addition to what uh, Maureen has talked about in terms of the new way that we work with our clients, it also really, really um, is difficult for defenders to collaborate sometimes with other agencies that are involved in the process who we have formerly perceived more in an adversarial way. Um, so some of the issues we have had in the office um, in addition to the issues with, you know, new types of relationships with our clients is new relationships with um, other people in the court system. And the other people in the court system as well have had some pushback about this idea of all of us working together for a positive goal rather than working in the traditional adversarial mode, um, which is it's a shift. You're, you're really changing hats. And we're so focused on being an advocate and being, you know, us and our client against the world. <laughs> and this is a very different approach, and it gives some of us pause. Um, you know, we are, we are in the job we're in because we tend to be anti-authority to some degree. That's why we were drawn to this profession. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, in some way, we kind of become a part of the authority, um, and that's challenging for defenders. And I also think it's challenging for other people in the court system to take their hats off and link arms with a federal public defender. That's not something they normally do either. Um, because this, you know, to quote um, Secretary Clinton, it does take a village for this to work. All of the agencies have to um, get together to make um, an initiative like this actually work. And it is, it is difficult and there is pushback, um, but I will tell you that I've seen hardcore skeptics, <laughs> once they got involved, completely change their perspective about the importance of this work. We're talking with Maureen Scott Franco and Kathy Nestor, federal public defenders in the Western District of Texas and Utah, about holistic indigent criminal defense and the role of the defender at pretrial and reentry. We'll be back to talk some more with Maureen and Kathy after a short break. This is Off Paper. The FJC's program, Quality Improvement in Federal Problem-Solving Courts, is a year-long blended learning experience designed to help courts improve participant outcomes by improving their processes. Courts learn to use the Plan, Do, Study, Act model for continuous quality improvement, an approach that was developed by Dr. W. Edwards Deming for manufacturing in the middle of the 20th century, and that more recently has been applied in human services contexts. Since 2011, teams from 25 judicial districts have participated in this FJC program. During an initial two-day seminar, court teams practice using the PDSA model to develop ideas for improving processes over the next year. Then, during that year, each team engages in a monthly, one-hour phone consultation with faculty to obtain guidance on using the PDSA model to address the improvements they have chosen to work on. Sometimes the improvements are fairly simple and are accomplished quickly. Sometimes they're larger and take more time. These can range from the team's data analysis and business practices to the ways in which the team interacts with participants in the problem-solving court environment. Applications for the next program, beginning in early FY 2018, will be available soon. To learn more about the program, 
visit Probation and Pretrial Services Education's page at fjc.dcn. We're back with Federal Defenders Maureen Scott Franco and Kathy Nestor. So I want to ask you both about holistic indigent defense at pretrial specifically. As you know, a significant number of federal defendants nationally are detained pending trial, even though many have been assessed as being low risk. This is a particularly interesting phenomenon because the federal judiciary, as you know, has pretrial services, so there's opportunities available for alternatives to detention. The national data indicate that the vast majority of defendants released on bond complete their pretrial release successfully. So first, could you talk about what your experiences have been in your districts with regard to detention and release and whether you think that taking a more holistic approach to representation by defenders could have an impact not just on detention and release rates, but on the disposition of cases where defendants have a lot of challenges that make it difficult for them to stay out of the criminal justice system? Maureen, what are your reactions to that? Well, um, as you probably know, Mark, we have a very high detention rate um, in the Western District of Texas. A lot of that is because of um, people who don't have uh, the proper um, papers to or status to be released on bond. But the other part is is the location close to the border. So there's a lot of um, uh, inter-border um, families and living arrangements and things like that. So. Um, that's part of the problem, and a lot of it is it's just easier, quote-unquote easier, for um, the court to, to just allow people or detain people and keep them locked up because then they don't have to worry about the flight. Uh, that seems to be more the problem as opposed to dangerousness. Um, and so that's somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction just to detain them without bond because of the possibility that they may um, vote for an acquittal with their feet by going across the border. Um and so, and because of the fact that some people live in Juarez, even though they're a U.S. citizen and they they um, work over here, they go to school here, but they live in Mexico, um, that is a challenge because a lot of times we may have a distant relative that the client could reside with or we have to resort to the halfway house, which is probably not the best place to put someone who's um, pending a case because now you perhaps are locking them up with other people that might get them involved in further problems. And so the holistic approach is very important in a situation like this because we really need to hit the ground running and just don't do the, the knee-jerk reaction of locking somebody up just because it's, quote-unquote, easier, um, and that would ensure their uh, appearance in future courts because uh, court hearings because you have the marshals there to transport them. And I find that if we are able to get, especially a client that has issues, if we work on getting them out, getting them services, working with pretrial, which you know, pretrial is amazing um, in the in the sense that they really uh, care about what happens to the client and they want the client to be successful. I think that that's why when people are released on bond, that it's uh, normally a successful situation. It's really good to have a success record when you then go before the district court for sentencing because you can really advocate for an alternative incarceration because this person has now hit the reset um, on their lives and they were able to address the problems that led them into their criminality in the first place. And so uh, it's extremely important and it does require a lot of legwork by an assistant defender who gets a case that the person is bondable to try to find a living arrangement, try to wrap up the social services that they're going to need. But uh, nine times out of ten, it's a successful 
um, resolved because the person obviously has gotten the services that they need. And secondly, you're able to show to the district court that locking this person up, making them restart again after getting out of jail is not beneficial to our community as a whole or to that individual. Maureen, uh, it's uh, very helpful and interesting to uh, hear you raise issues that are sort of unique to border courts um, in terms of immigration and border issues. Uh, You know, uh, these are issues that not a lot of other um, districts face uh, and really raise some unique challenges, especially for defenders and, and, and sort of other criminal justice stakeholders as well. Uh, You know, I wonder whether you could speak to um, how the work you've been doing, taking a more holistic approach, perhaps you had uh, had mentioned earlier um, the the pretrial diversion court. Um, Are are there ways in which you are working to try to affect uh, the disposition of the case? You know, and we're sort of here getting into even talking about sentencing. Right. So the the predisposition court absolutely is um, taking a holistic approach to the to the client's needs. Um, that is a um, team of the pretrial officers, the federal defenders, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the judge. Uh, we have um, uh, the service providers, the mental health providers, and also um, the cognitive therapists that are involved and everyone is working holistically to try to help this client become successful so that their case will be um, ultimately dismissed. That's what our uh, court is. It's a predisposition. So they plead guilty, but if they are successful with the program, then the case is dismissed against them. And it it had a bumpy start, quite honestly, because I think that everyone had this idea, well, we'll just treat it like it's a regular pretrial, you know, someone who's out on pretrial release. And very quickly, all the stakeholders realized that, oh, no, 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 we got to look at this person uh, in total. Uh, We have to look at all of their problems, and we have to address all of their problems, and be it living, driver's license, traffic tickets, child support issues, everything had to be approached um, and taken care of in order to ensure that this person was going to be successful. Kathy, uh, same question. What's been your experience in Utah, um, especially uh, with regard to pretrial and uh, sort of the work that you're doing more holistically and the impact, if at all, on the disposition of cases? Sure. So Utah's, um, of course, the Mountain West, and we're traditionally a pretty conservative area, and our judges tended to be conservative in the past about making decisions about detention versus pretrial release. Um, I think it would be fair to say that traditionally we had a culture of detention, um, and we all started really looking at the costs that was having not only to our our districts, but also to the families and to the defendants. And we really dug down to see what it would take to switch more to a culture of release, um, which really, under the Bail Reform Act, that's what we're supposed to be, right? There's supposed to be a presumption that you are released, except in particular crimes. Um, so we started looking at different ways to change the way we approached the in-out decision pre-trial. Um, one of the areas that we looked at were these risk assessment tools that became available uh, within the last several years. Um, of course, I know the audience is aware of the 
PITRA, the pre-trial risk assessment tool um, that's been fully adopted and vetted and um, scientifically tested um, and is now in use in all of our districts. And what we realized was that um, at the time, the only person who really was even aware of the PITRA scores or the PITRA risk assessment results was the probation officer. And our in our district, our probation officer wasn't even conveying those uh, risk analysis to the court. Um, they, the court was not aware of the picture or what it meant or what it, it meant. So we, we dug down as a, as a group and started looking at what the picture was. We trained everyone about, you know, the, the history of it and, and how it's used. And we basically incorporated it into our pretrial approach, our, our decision in front of the judge. And we have even incorporated our picture scores, um, into our pretrial reports. Um, and I think anyone who's familiar with the picture and the scientific results of that, um, it's fairly shocking how rarely people are at a risk of violating. Um, a tiny percentage of people, even in the most serious of criminal history categories, actually violate while they're on pretrial release. Um, so once we all started just becoming aware of the low risk of the majority of our clients um, to be out on release, we slowly started um, seeing more and more judges willing to consider alternative conditions and allow them to be released. And interestingly, what we saw was a huge change at sentencing. Um, I don't know if it's simply the ability to holistically help your client while they're out, you know, get employment, um, you know, deal with their addiction issues so that by the time they get to sentencing, they really have made great progress, which impresses the court, or whether there's some type of psychological factor where it's just more difficult for a judge to take someone who's doing well and is productive and basically send them backwards into a prison setting. But we have seen immense changes at sentencing for the clients that have been successful on pretrial release. And we, in our office, we now treat the detention hearing as seriously as we treat the sentencing hearing um, because we have determined that it has the greatest impact on what ultimately happens to our client on the back end. So it's been an interesting journey. Um, there's there are some issues with these risk assessment tools. I, you know, there's the jury's still out. Um, there's some suggestion that there's a disparate impact on minority populations simply by the factors that you look at to determine um, a group's risk. Um, but even with those um, issues, which I think we can all kind of be careful about and take into account, um, it has been an interesting way to really start shifting um, a culture of detention into a culture of release. Maureen, uh, I wanted to riff uh, on that culture of detention to culture of release uh, a little bit more and and ask you whether, you know, you've seen progress in that regard in your district. Well, absolutely. I, I believe that um, pretrial understands and, and certainly the magistrate judges understand that um, under the Bail Reform Act, they should be releasing people and not detaining them. But as everything, it, it, it requires a cultural shift in, in their thinking. And I agree with what Kathy said, absolutely, that um, the detention hearing should be treated as seriously as a sentencing hearing because it can greatly determine what the ultimate outcome of not only the case for the client, but the client's life. Um, a lot of times they are missing direction. And so if we're able to get in there and help them um, through pretrial um, and backing up pretrial and help them get jobs and 
and secure employment and good employment and help with the living situation, it really will uh, not only impact in, uh, positively their lives, but also it helps us with advoca- advocating for them at sentencing. My guests are Federal Defenders Kathy Nestor and Maureen Scott Franco. After a short break, we'll talk with Kathy and Maureen about the impact of holistic indigent defense on relationships with clients and criminal justice counterparts. We'll also talk about how holistic indigent defense and the development of problem-solving approaches in federal criminal justice more generally are affecting defender offices as organizations. I'm Mark Sherman, and you're listening to Off Paper. To help supervisors learn to improve their work with line officers in this age of risk and needs assessment, core correctional practices, and reducing recidivism, FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education has developed Supervising Officers in an Evidence-Based Environment. This in-district year-long blended learning program aims to teach supervisors an array of skills such as listening actively, providing feedback, and reinforcing officers' efforts. You'll learn to apply evidence-based principles and help officers connect risk assessment results with case plans and supervision strategies. Methods for conducting focused discussion during case staffing and interactions with officers will be examined, and strategies for reviewing case plans to ensure that they reflect evidence-based supervision approaches will be explored. Because these skills and this training are in such demand, the 2017 program is already fully subscribed. But it is not too early to start thinking about your training needs for next year. For more information about the program, visit the FJC's Probation and Pretrial Services page at fjc.dcn. Kathy Nestor and Maureen Scott Franco are our guests. I want to explore with you how the emerging holistic approach to indigent defense practice in the federal system is affecting the relationships of defenders both with clients and professional counterparts. When it comes to clients, defenders have always been viewed as their champions. After all, the primary role of criminal defense is to force the government to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt before it can deprive an individual of his or her liberty and, in the most extreme case, his or her life. But advocates of the holistic approach, like Robin Steinberg of the Bronx Defenders, say that doing an excellent job in addressing the needs of a client's criminal case is not enough because many indigent clients have other needs that will be unaddressed and will eventually drive the client back into the criminal justice system. So I wonder if each of you could talk about a client that you or one of your assistant defenders have represented recently who had a lot of needs that wouldn't have been addressed but for a problem-solving approach and how that changed your clients' lives. Kathy, let's start with you. I think probably um, some of the most really stunning results that we have seen have have probably come out of what we call our behavioral health court um, we have um, this court is designed to assist people that are on medication that are diagnosed um, that um, really need a whole different level of supervision to succeed in society and so many times people with serious mental illness just simply can't um, succeed under our typical culturally um, uh, traditional um, model of supervision 
So what we've seen is very ill people that come into the behavioral health court um, and they come often and they're uh, monitored, their medications are monitored, and we assist them with just the most minor problems. Um, and we recently had a very ill man who um, just simply was, there was just none of us believed that he could uh, function well in society without ultimately ending up back in our system and he got his medications regulated and he was just really receptive to connections with our social workers, our mental health care treatment providers um, and he's actually doing great and even made the statement um, a few weeks ago to our social worker that we have on staff um, that he just couldn't believe programs like this existed um, and that, in fact, um, it was a lifesaver, that he, he thought he was going to die. Um, and just really briefly, one other really interesting um, thing that's recently happened that just reveals how culturally um, tribal communities are impacted by supervision. We had a, a tribal reentry court situation where um, we had a, a long time, uh, we call him a regular in the criminal justice system, <laughs> right. and he he was just aged out and he was tired and he just, he wanted to stop um, the revolving door and he, he really, he needed help. He was desperately impoverished and he needed to hunt to feed his family and he asked for permission to hunt with a bow and arrow and it took huge efforts on the part of everyone involved in the tribal community, but we realized that, you know, that was his only way that he could avoid, you know, another charge of being caught with some type of improper weapon, such as a gun. So everybody pulled together, worked it out, got a special um, accommodation for him, and he has had zero problems, no weapons, no violence. All he needed was a way to feed his family. And um, it's just things like that, that if you don't experience these types of collaborative court settings, you know, that, that man's problem never would have been addressed or even realized, and he'd have ended up back in the system because he would have gotten a gun and hunted and done everything he wasn't supposed to do. So um, just little stories like that, I think, really show that there are small things that can make huge differences in the trajectory of people's lives. Maureen, can you talk about a client you've worked with in this way, and, and what happened to them? Um, yes, I, the one that pops in my head is that one of our um, participants in the Adelante program who um, is, as it turns out, um, borderline mentally retarded, and um, he uh, was facing a tremendous sentence. It's a, what we refer to as a bridge case. Um, he got recruited to cross a load of, um, I think it was methamphetamine, if I'm not mistaken, and he, um, as it turns out, so he came in and, and uh, struggled uh, terribly at first because one was we have group hearings, and that was very uncomfortable for him because of um, of his inability really to cognitively grasp everything that was going on. And um, in, at one point he said, I mean, he verbally said it would be easier for me just to go do prison, and this is, we're talking six, seven years of prison, that it would be to try to complete this program. So the judge um, called in all hands on deck, and it was, and I mean every hand was on deck, to try to figure out what we could do to make sure that he was successful. And so then we delve into his history and into his 
um, situation with his mother. His, his father had committed suicide. His mother had serious mental health problems. He had a brother who uh, was in the criminal justice system as well. And it was looking at that and everyone jumping in to try to help. We had um, the Shadows to Light class, which is a cognitive-based um, class that our participants um, engage in, working on the issues that he had, um, working, going, trying to get him into MRT to work with that. And um, it was, it took a while. We separated him from the rest of the uh, the participants, and he reported in, even as he phased through the program, he reported in on a weekly basis because he needed that attention on a weekly basis so that he saw everyone was um, behind him. And he will graduate within the next couple of months. And this is somebody who, at the very beginning, was willing, thought that it would be easier for him to do six or seven years in prison than to try to tackle um, the the problems that he had. And I will tell you, there was probably people in that court, courtroom that thought the same thing, that it would be easier just for him to go do his prison sentence and for all of us to take off our blinders and and figure out what was going on in his life and to try to make a difference for him. And it's made a, tre- a tremendous difference for um, not just him, but for his mother. Um, she's now, because of our involvement, she's now getting um, proper mental health care. Um, the brother as well um, is doing much better on his criminal justice issues um, because of the good example his older brother is, is um, presenting to him. Those are amazing stories. Uh, and when I hear both of you describe uh, the impact that uh, your work and the work of uh, the other professionals and the court that that you are work, both working with, uh, it's it's really quite extraordinary and so different um, than than the stories we hear and and just so different from the traditional way of working and and I think it's a provides a nice segue into this next part of the conversation where I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about how taking a holistic problem-solving approach to client representation has affected your office's relationship with counterparts like probation and pretrial services. Kathy referred before earlier uh, to the challenges uh, to defenders of collaborating when they are traditionally um, uh, you know, sort of used to engaging in an adversarial relationship relationship. Um, and that sometimes extends to not just the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, but to to other uh, stakeholders that, that you all work with regularly. Um, I think it's no secret that the relationship between defenders and pretrial services officers generally is quite good, primarily because pretrial services, when executed well, is helpful to the court and the defendant and therefore to the defense lawyer. Um, on the other hand, the history of the relationship between probation and defenders has been more adversarial. Uh, in part, it's because of the officer's role in compiling the pre-sentence report under current sentencing law and policy uh, and the officer's law enforcement role when it comes to supervision. Also, the defender in doing his or her job must be de- zealous in defending the client, which for some officers I think comes across not so much as an ethical obligation of defense counsel, but as getting in the way of the officer who's simply trying to do his or her job. It seems to me, though, that, that with problem. Uh, a problem-solving approach, these professional relationships are evolving. And I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing and and if you can speak to that. Kathy? Actually, um, I have a great example of that. So one of the things when we started folding the pretrial risk assessment into our pretrial process 
uh, we all decided we wanted to have a pretrial report at the initial appearance. Um, many of our clients were needlessly being held for two to three days, um, which is just enough time to lose your job, right? Um, and we just decided we didn't want to do that anymore, that we thought it was a waste of money, especially if they were ultimately going to get out. Um, so we looked at our system and said, what are we going to have to do to have a pretrial report ready at the initial? And we realized that all of us were going to have to change the way we worked a bit. So the U.S. attorneys were going to have to take an extra step of when they indicted someone, providing in advance to probation the identifiers so they could run a criminal history in advance. Um, that's one more thing they had to do that they normally didn't do. Um, and then the marshals were going to have to get the um, defendants into the courthouse by 8 in the morning, which meant the marshals had to get up really early in the morning. And then the defenders had to get up really early in the morning because we had to be there at 8 a.m. on the dot so we could get an early morning interview and be present and get the probation pretrial enough time to go upstairs and draft a report. And then the magistrates had to give a little bit because they had to agree to push their hearings back to later in the afternoon, which is challenging for them sometimes because that's when a lot of them do their paperwork. Mm. Um, so basically we all had to give something up and none of us wanted to. Um, so we had a meeting and all just kind of looked each other in the eye and said, you know what, this is what we're going to have to do to make this happen. Let's just do it. And it felt good. It was it was a real interesting um, exercise in everybody, you know, giving a little bit instead of just saying we don't do it that way. To say, well, why can't we? Um, and it's been such a great uh, benefit to all of us, especially you know, even the marshals um, are pleased with it because now instead of transporting someone back to jail, uh, they go home that day, and the marshals it saves them work on the back end. Um, so it was a really interesting way to work together as a team instead of against each other, um, and it benefited everyone. Um, and it was it, it was just very emblematic of how we are starting to see each other as a team rather than as adversaries when it comes to issues like this. And it's um, improves all our relationships even when we are adversarial, um, and it kind of brings people's hearts out. Um, you get to see that they do really care about your clients when you were skeptical of that before. <laughs> so it's been a great experience, I think. Maureen, have you seen a similar evolution in terms of the relationships that you and and your assistant defenders have with uh, you know your counterparts in the system uh, as as you uh, work on cases and just sort of whether it's within the, the the sort of collaborative court context or just sort of in the more traditional context? Uh, w w what have you observed? Well, I would agree with what you had stated earlier that the relationship between a defender's office and pretrial has always been a much more um, cozy, warm, and, and fuzzy relationship <laughs> and feeling than what defenders have felt towards probation officers, which, I mean, I, I remember for many, many years, really until I started this court, um, thinking of them as the enemy um, mm. because of I didn't think that they were there to help the client. In fact, I probably have said that in my younger years, you know, when they were doing a pre-sentence uh, interview, um, they're not your friends. They're going to come across as your friends, but they're not your friends. Mm. And so participating in this court completely changed um, my philosophy about that, that if you have um, that the people who are drawn to doing probation work, um, uh, the, especially the supervision officers, 
if they have hired right, um, which in a lot of cases they have, they really are as equally um, um, vetted to the idea uh, that you are or wedded to the idea that you are that you want this person to be successful. And I have to say, I mean, shame on me, but I really didn't believe that until I got involved in the reentry court. And then I saw it firsthand. I saw officers that uh, were going overboard and working long, long hours to help the client be successful in the court. And, um, and it, it really gave me a new respect for the type of work that they do. And when you see a good officer, the type of rapport that they have with the client, I think it's even better in some ways than the rapport that they have with um, myself or with my assistant defenders um, because they're talking to them on a daily basis um, because that's part of the program. And so um, it really has improved my my view on probation. I will tell you, though, that because of that, if I see a probation officer outside in a normal context, so outside the collaborative court, who really isn't living up to that standard of what now I think a probation officer should be, um, it really makes me want to go after them in a court case. <laughs> because, you know, because you, can, you know that they've been given all the, the training and the programs and the education, and they know how to do it right. And when you see that they ha- they're not doing it right and that they're really setting the client up for failure, it really... Um, angers you because you know that they have been given the right resources to do it right. Um, so we, we are nearing the end of the program, but before we close, I wanted to ask you both whether, uh, in light of this emerging holistic practice, you've made any changes to the way your offices operate, or if you've observed changes in the way other defender offices operate, um, or just sort of uh, whether the practice has kind of naturally evolved. For example, I've noticed that some defender offices, and Kathy referred to this uh, in talking about her own office's work, I've noticed that some defender offices have social workers on staff to assist clients with needs that exist outside of their criminal cases. Uh, I imagine that some defender offices have have ramped up um, sort of employing staff who are non-lawyers, social workers, or whomever who can work with clients in that kind of way. What are your thoughts about that type of thing? Maureen? Well, I recently hired it, and really um, based upon what I learned um, from Kathy's office, um, to hire a social worker, a mitigation specialist is what we call her, um, but she's a licensed social worker, and and because of that, she's able to bring in er- interns um, who are trying to get their masters in social work, so you get an extra benefit because um, you get free labor. But um, she, it's been enormously helpful to us in in the traditional setting uh, of our cases because she's able to really delve into the client's history and, and is able to find the information that is um, assisting us in advocating for the client at sentencing. And, I mean, I can't believe that we did it for so long without somebody like that because I think that we all thought that lawyers and investigators can do it and really we're not trained to do that. And it really does require us shifting the how we think um, in order to get the whole picture of the client, in order to present that um, to the judge at, or the prosecutor for that matter, because um, we've used our mitigation specials to help us in negotiating pleas or dismissals um, from the U.S. Attorney's Office based upon her research. And so um, I really owe it to uh, my exposure to Kathy um, at our trainings that I saw the benefit of it 
and and decided to try it out. And I have to say that I've been um, very happy with the results, and hopefully I can move the office more towards that. Kathy, uh, what kinds of things have you done? You mentioned the the, the, the social workers in your office. Um, sure. Talk a little bit about that. So we, well, I'm just tickled that Maureen has has <laughs> seen the light now. That makes me happy. Um, but we have two social workers. One of the things um, we did was I created a mental health committee. Uh, over a third of our clients, um, you know, it ebbs and flows, but clearly have serious mental health issues. Um, and we actually have our committee screen every case that involves mental health issues to make sure that we're working with the right care providers, that we're doing the proper evaluations. We have our social workers do initial evaluations. Um, and that is really that holistic approach of looking at the the core issues the person is suffering with, even before we ever get to the crime they've been charged with. Um, and that's made a huge difference for our clients who suffer with mental illness, which, again, is just a huge portion of our client base. Um, and, you know, we've also um, really engaged people across the spectrum. I probably have a total of 15 different um, people in my office involved in one way or another in holistic work. Um, I, I will say that I, I get frustrated because the courts have not um, – really created a budget for these kind of things yet, mm, um, and we're still mm-hmm. really trying to educate the the courts on why this is important and why it should be funded and why there should be staffing um, formulas that take into account the work that we have to do um, over and above our mission, which is to set the leg, right? <laughs> we're all doing that too. Um, so I, I, I hope in the future that we see more support in terms of funding for allowing designated people that this is just their role and this is what they do and we should pay for them to do that and not have it be people working, you know, late hours or on their own time to accomplish these goals. So we're trying to push that forward. And, again, it's it's a slow process and it's it's going to require judges across the country and the ones who serve on the um, the, the major committees to really understand that there needs to be funding for this. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're getting there. And I'm grateful to this podcast for giving us a chance to convince some people of that. So thank you. Well, this has been a fascinating and enlightening discussion. Maureen Franco, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And Kathy, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it. Maureen Scott Franco and Kathy Nestor are federal defenders in the Western District of Texas and the District of Utah. They've been at the forefront of holistic indigent defense in their districts, addressing clients' needs beyond their criminal cases. By doing so, they're helping clients avoid involvement in the criminal justice system. Their work, and similar efforts by other defenders, is transforming indigent defense in the federal courts and improving outcomes for clients, courts, and the public. Off Paper is produced by Paul Vanvass. The program is directed and edited by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.